Welcome to the SMC 2021 podcast. What if God wanted to do something new in your life? This is your fresh start. Hi, my name is Blake Christman, and I am excited to have you with me in this breakout session. I just trusted in Christ. Now what? You know, there's some famous questions out there. They're called the diagnostic questions. You probably heard of them before. They go something like this. From zero to 100%, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And the second one is if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? These are incredible questions. They're diagnostic because they diagnose the condition of our heart and what we are trusting in. And I want you to take a second and think about your answer. How would you answer those diagnostic questions? What do you think most people would say? You know, most most people are somewhere in the 70 to 80% range and their reason for getting into heaven falls into the category of, I'm a pretty good person. I've done good things. I've gone to church. I've, I've never done anything seriously bad. And I just want to be very clear with you right now. If you or anyone else gives one of those types of answers, then your understanding of the gospel is off. There's a chart that I love to show and, and we could use to illustrate it. We call it the T chart. If you were to draw this out on your paper on the left side, you could write not saved by and underline it. And on the right side, you could write saved by and underline that. Now listen to these verses. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What are you saved by? He says, by grace, what are you not saved by? Works. You could write those underneath each category. Look at the next one, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What are you saved by? Mercy. What are you not saved by? Righteous things. Look at Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What are you saved by? Faith in Jesus. What are you not saved by? Works of the law. We could keep going on and on with, with verses. So the question for us to evaluate and the question for you to evaluate up to this point in your life, how much have you been depending on what you do, your works, your actions, the righteous things? And how much have you been depending solely on the grace of God given through Jesus? These verses are explaining the gospel message that, that we are saved 100% by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He took our debt for our sin. He took the penalty and he purchased salvation for us when he died on the cross. And then he rose from the grave to show that he had conquered sin and death. The payment was made and that we could have eternal life with God. And so if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you why he should let you in, what's the answer? What would you say? Because Jesus has accomplished salvation for me through his death and resurrection. And I trust in him. That's the only answer. So why do people struggle so much with these diagnostic questions? Why is it so hard for us to grasp those answers? Well, I think, I think one reason is it 
it feels arrogant to say 100%, right? Like who wants to be asked if you're going to heaven and say 100%? It's like from zero to 100%, how rich are you? And you're like, well, I'm 100% rich. It's like, okay, I don't want to be friends with this guy. Like that's what it feels like in our answer. But that shows our misunderstanding of the gospel. It would be arrogant to say 100% if our reasoning had anything to do with ourselves. If it was, I'm 100% because I'm awesome. Yes, that is arrogant. But that's not what this is. That's not what we're saying. True faith in the gospel is humble. If instead you say, I'm 100%, but not because of myself, actually in spite of myself. I'm 100% because I believe Jesus died for me and rose again, and I trust in him for salvation. That's not arrogant. That's faith. That's trust. That's dependence. That's the heart of salvation. So is that you? How would you answer those questions today? From zero to 100%, how sure are you that you would get in and why should he let you in? How do those questions diagnose the state of your heart? You're in this breakout probably because either you or or someone that you know you want to help has been wrestling with this decision to go all in and turn from sin and trust in Christ. Here is why this breakout is so important in these questions. There is a scary reality that you can know the right answers to those questions. You could articulate those answers and still not be saved and still not have a relationship with God. The Bible and and Jesus warns us of false believers and false conversions. And probably, probably the clearest warning and most vivid description comes from Jesus himself in Matthew 7. In verse 21, he starts off, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are some of you out there who will serve Jesus your whole life, do all kinds of amazing things, go to church, be involved, and not get into heaven. Why? What does he say? I never knew you. I never knew you. There was no relationship. See, you aren't saved by an intellectual knowledge of of Jesus. You're saved because you've entered into a relationship with him. There's a union with Christ that takes place where God applies Jesus's life and his righteousness to your account. You know, it's a lot like a marriage. When when I got married to my wife, we combined our bank accounts. Now we file our taxes jointly together. All of my possessions got applied to her life for better or worse. I don't know if she wanted them all, but all of our stuff became part of one. In a marriage union, is actually an incredible analogy for how you enter into a relationship with Jesus. This is a great tool for you to evaluate and use if you're helping students make this decision to trust in in Christ. Look at these various stages of a relationship. You know, when I first met my wife-to-be, we started out 
as good friends. I was in the friend zone, unfortunately, but we flirted some and it wasn't serious at first. We were in the friend stage. But after a while, I started thinking more about the possibility of us dating. And so I asked her out and we entered into a new stage of our relationship, the dating stage. Well, after eight months of dating, I decided, hey, this is the girl I want to marry. So I proposed to her. She said yes. And we were engaged for six months before our wedding. This was our engaged stage. But then our wedding day got here. And the craziest thing happens on your wedding day. See, up until this point, we were still two individual people. No real commitment to each other. I could have text messaged her and broken up with her in two seconds. Probably not the best strategy, but that's the level of commitment. It's not much. But on the altar, we stood there. We faced each other. The pastor asked us a series of questions. Do you promise to love her in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer? Think about that. If she breaks my bank, takes all my money, then he says, for better or for worse. Like, even if this makes your life worse, yes, I promise. It's a commitment. And in that moment, the pastor pronounces you man and wife. And in one millisecond, you go from two individual people into this new married relationship and everything changes. It's amazing. Our relationship with Christ is similar. Think about what stage you're in in your relationship with Christ. Are you in the friend stage? Are you getting more serious or are you committed? The problem I often see is is we get these stages out of order in our Christian life. We try to do things to act like we have a relationship with Jesus before the relationship ever starts. So many people read the Bible and they go to church and they pray and say, they say, look, see, I'm a Christian. No, Jesus has to know you. The relationship has to start for those things to be meaningful. How does it start? It starts with a commitment. When I stood on the altar and I said, I do to my wife, I turned away from my selfishness. I turned away from every other woman on the face of the earth. And I said, no, I'm committed to this woman, my wife. When you trust Christ, you have to turn from everything else, from yourself, your sin, your idols. You say no to all those things and you commit to surrender authority to Christ. And then God pronounces in a moment, he says, I know you. You're my child. You turn and trust in Jesus. It happens in a moment, but it is a massive and life-changing commitment. I feel like just like in America where we've kind of cheapened the marriage commitment, we've made divorce easy and it's so prevalent. I think we've cheapened the commitment to Christ as well. So you'll hear people say things like, oh yeah, you know, just ask Jesus into your heart or just pray this quick prayer and you'll be saved. And most of you have probably done that at some point in your life. We make trusting Christ sound like signing up for a Netflix subscription, something easy. But before we move on to what to do starting out as a Christian, I want to stop here and evaluate. Have you just acknowledged Christ? Have you just said a prayer sometime? Or have you truly committed to him? There's a really helpful tool used to to describe what true faith is. And it's 
can be compared to three rungs of a ladder. You know, first, the Bible says that we have to hear about Jesus in the gospel. That's the first rung of the ladder. You have to hear about it. Romans 10, 14 says, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And, and obviously all of us in this room have for sure heard about Jesus, but hearing about him doesn't save us. No, we have to go to the second rung of the ladder. The second rung is we have to believe in Jesus, but just believing in Jesus doesn't save us either. Listen to James 2, 19. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe in Jesus, but that doesn't save us either. So what's the difference? Well, they don't grab the third rung. The third rung of the ladder that makes true faith in Christ real is the word trust. That's the difference. Non-believers and, and demons, they haven't transferred their trust or their allegiance to Christ. It's still with themselves, so they're not saved. It's when we go from our head and our heart to our will to trust Christ that we enter into this relationship. But here's the amazing part, though. You should be encouraged by this. Listen, you can't grab that third rung. You can't trust in Christ on your own. This trust is a gift of God. He gives you the ability to believe and trust in him. This is a supernatural work of God, of God that takes place inside your heart and soul and moves you towards this trust. Listen to this in John chapter 10. Jesus gives this analogy of himself as a shepherd and his followers as his sheep. And listen to what he says in John 10 verse 4. It says, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. Jesus says, there's those of, of you out there who are his sheep and he is the shepherd and his sheep listen and recognize his voice. So hear me, do you sense God calling you to himself right now? Like at this conference or over the course of this semester in recent days and weeks, do you get the sense that you are hearing the shepherd's voice call you to himself? That's how he does it. God initiates salvation in us, and it's our job to respond to him. Going back to our diagnostic question, some of you might wrestle with, well, I, I don't know if I'm 100%, and by that you mean you worry that your faith or your belief isn't strong enough. That's why it's so crucial to understand how salvation actually works. You are not saved by the strength of your faith, but by the strength of the object of your faith. Did you get that? Listen again. You aren't saved by how intense your faith is or how powerful your trust is or how strong your belief is. It's not about how fired up or pumped up or anything like that. It's not an emotional thing. You are saved by the object of your faith. That's Jesus. That's who you trust in. Why can you be 100%? because that's how certain the promises of Jesus are. He saves you and you can have confidence in him. So I wanna ask again, what is your confidence and trust in today? Yourself, your abilities, is it your performance for God? Or is it in Christ and in his work and in his accomplishment? Have you turned 
from yourself and your sin and committed your life to Christ? And I hope that the answer to all of those questions is yes, that you've said, I do. And I want to give you a moment just to reflect on those questions again. We want to make sure that we don't just answer them right in intellectually. We want to make sure we you grasp them in your heart. And so I want you to think about them, then turn to the group you're sitting with and talk about these questions for a second. So the first one is, how have you typically answered those diagnostic questions in the past? Zero to 100%, how sure are you that you'd be saved? And if God were to ask you, why should he let you in? And number two is what has changed in your understanding of faith and trust in Jesus? And how would you answer those questions now? So go ahead and talk about those for just a moment. All right, so is that the end? Of course not. No, that is the beginning. When my wife and I said, I do to each other, we turned, we faced the, the crowd in our church and we walked out of there as husband and wife and we started this new relationship. My wife and I, we will have been married for 10 years in a couple of months this March. And I promise you, I love her way more today than I did 10 years ago then. Why? And I would have said that then. Why? Because I know her more today. We've experienced more together. We've done more things together. We've grown together. We have three kids together. Our relationship is stronger today. I, I do things to try to love and serve her now. She does them to me. But I don't do those to earn a marriage with her. But I do it because I have a marriage with her. Nothing I do makes me more or less married. That relationship was sealed on the day we committed to each other. I wear a, a wedding ring as a sign and a symbol of that commitment that in relationship that we have. That's actually in the Christian faith. That's what baptism for it's the, is for. It's the sign and the commitment and initiation into this body of Christ, the church. But you know, there's practices that grow our relationship. There are things that make it stronger. You know what I know about my wife? I know that she loves half Coke, half Diet Coke, easy ice from Sonic. Sometimes I'll swing by on the way home from work and I'll get it for her. And I know that she loves it. When I get her that drink, am I more married? No, but it grows our relationship. It makes it stronger. So once you've committed to Christ and entered into this new relationship with him, what are the things that you need to be doing to grow your relationship? That's going to be the focus of the second half of this breakout. And this will be helpful if this is you and your life just starting out, or if you're helping other people start growing for the first time in their lives as well. So here's what we do. Here's what we do now to start growing our faith. I want to introduce you to my family. I've got three kids, as you can see. Uh, one of them is, is very young. This is Lily. She's five months old. Total blast. It's been fun to see her grow, watch her older brother and sister help take care of her. It is awesome. Well, the Bible actually uses another metaphor when talking about spiritual growth, and that's of a newborn infant and the process of maturity that they go through. You know, in John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he tells him he must be born again. That term is, is this process that we've described of entering into a new relationship with God. Well, once you're born again, you start this process of maturing and growing spiritually over the rest of your life. 
And your goal at the end is to look more and more like Jesus as you grow. Listen to Colossians 2 verse 6 and 7 talks about this process of maturity. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Growing up into salvation is our goal. We're called to mature and grow up. After Lily was born, they do all kinds of tests and checkups for the first year to make sure that she's growing and progressing properly. They want to see that she's getting the essentials that she needs to progress in her life. And in the same way, we need to mature and grow spiritually. There are five essentials that are necessary when someone comes to faith in Christ to grow properly. And I want to walk through these with you. What's great is they they kind of correlate perfectly with a newborn baby. They're the same things that a newborn baby needs physically. And even the Bible use this, uses this metaphor of infants growing into mature adults in Christ. And so these are the five essentials that a baby needs. So I'll just give them to you. Uh, and then you'll we'll walk through what they mean in your spiritual life. So a baby needs five things. They need touch, food, cleansing, communication, and rest. And if you're new to your faith, these are the essentials that you need to assure that you have in your life. So the first one is touch. A baby needs physical touch. When Lily was born, the very first thing that the, she did was called skin to skin. I mean, literally instants after she's born, the doctor with the umbilical cord still on plops my daughter onto my wife's chest for skin to skin time. When a baby does skin to skin, it, it regulates their body temperature and their heart rate and stress hormones and they're crying and all kinds of amazing things happen when they do skin to skin. They've done all kinds of studies on newborns that are abandoned or left in their cribs or in orphanages without being held much. It's devastating. It can impact their development six, seven years down the road trying to play catch up. Physical contact and touch is essential for a newborn and it's essential for the life of a new believer. What we call this in the spiritual maturity world is fellowship. You need contact with other believers. You need regular times of fellowship and encouragement and accountability. Imagine how a newborn baby would fare if you just left them there to fend for their lives on their own. They wouldn't last long. And a new believer in Christ won't either. There's a lot of emphasis on a personal relationship with God in America. We talk about it that way. We say, yeah, you know, my relationship is between me and the Lord. And you know what? Yes, it is personal between you and God, but it isn't private. It's never meant to be done in isolation. The Christian life is always done in community. Jesus calls that the church, the body of Christ. That's what you enter into when you come to faith in Jesus, and it's essential for your growth. So what other believers in your life are you meeting with regularly right now? You need disciples, older ones in your life who you can talk to daily. You can talk about things you're learning. You can pray together. You can ask them questions. It's essential for your growth and development. And just a, a side point to this, it doesn't necessarily fit in with the baby theme, but another essential touch that new believers have is with other people. 
uh, who don't know Christ yet. We call it witnessing, that you have friends and family in your life who still don't know Jesus and need to know about your new faith in them. There's an example of this uh, in the Gospels after Jesus heals and saves a demon-possessed man. It says, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And listen, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He went away and immediately started sharing the good news about Jesus. That was the natural response. You know, when you graduate from high school, you send out an announcement. You tell everyone when you come to know Jesus, it's only fitting that you would pass that on to others. The first thing a newborn needs is, is touch, physical contact. It's fellowship with other believers. The close second and almost immediate second essential that a newborn needs is food. That's our second one. And this might be a little TMI, but you know, within 10 minutes of being born, my daughter starts breastfeeding. I mean, it's crazy. They just latch on and start going. And a, a baby's born essentially with only two reflexes. One is to flinch when they're startled. The other is to eat. It's amazing. They eat all the time, every two to three hours for three or four straight months. That means in the first three months of their life, they will eat 930 times. They crave food and they'll let you know when they're hungry. They can't go long because their stomachs are tiny. When they're born, their stomach is the size of a cherry. They need constant nutrition. And in our spiritual lives, our food is the word of God, the Bible. Listen to 1 Peter 2.2. 2. It says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You need to crave God's word more than anything else in these early stages. You got to go to it all the time. You have a hunger in your life that needs to be satisfied. And you can try to satisfy it with the world or with, or with God himself. Now imagine if, if I gave my newborn candy every day. I mean, the sugar would taste sweet. She'd love it for a moment, but she would suffer. And that's how sin and the world are. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing is Psalm 34, 8 through 10. A lot of people are intimidated by the Bible because they don't know where to start. And that's okay. You know, you're, you're a newborn. You don't need to be sucking down entire sections of the Old Testament. Your, your spiritual stomach is still small. Take it in a little bit at a time, but but do it often. Make it a regular habit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, matured, prepared, and ready for every good work. God's word equips you. It grows you and prepares you for later stages in life. The third essential for a newborn is they need to be cleaned. Not only does my daughter Lily eat a lot, she poops a lot too. You know, we already discussed and crossed the breastfeeding boundary. We may as well talk about fecal matter too. You know, it's true. Babies poop a lot, like eight to 12 times a day, you know, so not only are they eating 930 times, but you're changing around 1100 diapers of the first three months too. It's insane. 
as a believer in Jesus, you're going to soil yourself too. You're going to mess up. We call it sin. Disobeying God. There's still this thing inside of you called your flesh, which it longs for things that are selfish and opposed to God. And when you notice sin in your life, you need to change your diaper. You need to allow God to clean you up and turn from those things. You know, sin doesn't remove your relationship with God, but it is unhealthy for you. If my daughter sat in her dirty diaper for a long time, it wouldn't be good for her. Sin does hurt you. It strains and it hinders your love for God. But when my daughter poops in her diaper, she never stops being my daughter. I don't love her less. I clean her up. I don't want to let her sit in that all day. That would be terrible. And you know, God wants to do the same thing for you. He's actually given us a practice to do when we notice sin in our lives. He wants us to confess. That's our third essential practice. We need fellowship. We need God's word. And we need to confess. Listen to 1 John 1 verse 8 through 9. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive and purify you. That's his promise. Now, when you think of confession, you might immediately think of the Catholic version, you know, where you go to the priest and you confess directly and you give your penance or, or your list of things to do to make, make up for it. You know, I, went, I grew up going to Catholic school and that was kind of my understanding of confession. Now, I want to tell you something. While that practice, you know, might be okay in principle, it's actually even better than that. You don't need to go to a priest to confess Jesus is your high priest. And the word, the word confess means to agree. So the next time you lie or you lust or you do something selfish, just stop. And in that moment, talk to God. Tell him, God, I confess that I sinned. I agree. That's not your will for how I'm supposed to live. I ask for your forgiveness. Purify me. Make me holy like your son, Jesus. Help me to live according to your word. You know, you pray something like that. That is such a helpful practice to confess directly to God. But you know what makes this practice even more powerful or as powerful as when you confess to a friend? James 5.16 gives us the prescription of that. He says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We have a tendency to cover up and hide when we sin. We don't want, want others to see our junk and our mistakes. But God has given us a community to lean on. This is part of the fellowship that we talked about in point one. You need to have one or two other people that you meet with regularly to confess your sin and pray for each other. Don't sit around in your dirty diaper. Don't try to cover it up. Confess your sin and allow God to cleanse you. Number four, babies need communication. From the second that we held Lily, we started talking to her. We told her how much we loved her. And in her own little way, she started communicating back to us. 
After about four to six weeks, babies can start making direct eye contact. About three months in, they figure out they have a tongue. Around four to six months, they'll start cooing and squealing and making all kinds of of noises and and maybe the best thing is is this listen (laughs) it's amazing they start laughing god has given us a means to communicate with him and we call that prayer you know prayer like that sound of my daughter laughing is a source of your greatest joy. Listen to John 16 verse 24. It says, until now you have asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full, not some joy, not a little joy, full. Jesus commands us to pray and ask him and experience the joy of a relationship with him. But prayer is hard. It's a learned skill. Just like Lily didn't come out talking or laughing or any of those things. Your prayers at first, they might be short. They might be quick little squeals and (laughs) sounds that we can't understand. That's great. Keep going. You'll learn that you have a tongue. You'll learn that you can interact more with God and your prayer muscle will grow. I often use a really simple framework for prayer. It's really tough to remember. It's called pray. It's an acrostic. The P stands for praise, where you just tell God the things that you're learning about him and things you love about him. The R stands for repent. That's the confession piece that we just talked about. The A stands for ask, where you ask God for help and guidance and wisdom and ask him for him to move in other people's lives. And the last one, this part is crucial. The last one, Y stands for yield. This is where I acknowledge God is in control. I give him control of my eyes, what I look at. I ask him to control my tongue, what I say, my ears, what I hear. I ask him to control my heart, what I love, my hands, the way I serve and care for people, my feet, where I go to to meet needs for my stomach, my desires. I want God to control all of my life. You build a habit of communicating to God through prayer. And finally, the last essential, the fifth one, every newborn needs is rest. You know, newborns sleep for about 17 to 18 hours a day. And some of you college students could give them a run for their money on the weekends, but sleep is essential. It's what babies do. If they don't sleep, they get cranky. They get almost impossible to console. The exhaustion wears on their little bodies. When you come to Christ, something amazing happens. God says you enter into his rest. Check this out, Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The Sabbath rest was a day of the week where God's people would totally stop work And it was a reminder that God would provide for them. Well, the writer of Hebrews says that when we trust in Jesus, we enter this permanent rest where we rest from our works. And this rest is a reminder of the gospel. 
That's our fifth essential, the gospel message. As a new believer, you need to constantly remind yourself that you're not performing for God. You're not earning his favor. If you are in Christ, then God has saved you, not based on anything you've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. That's why you can answer those questions 100% because of Jesus. And you remind yourself, this is what you do daily. You remind yourself that you are accepted. You're loved. You're adopted into God's family. He saved you. You're secure in your relationship. And he's guaranteed of eternal life with God forever. Nothing can separate you from all that. All of your life, you follow Christ from that place of rest. You know, when I became a dad for the first time, I learned something amazing about God and, and the rest that we have in the gospel. This is a picture of my daughter. She's sleeping in her crib and there she is laying there. She's literally doing nothing. She can't move. She can't give me anything. She can't talk to me. All she can do is require things from me. She requires feeding. She requires changing, helping, taking care of her took so much energy. She's not working or earning or performing anything for me. But I love her so much. I'd do anything for her. When Jesus calls God our heavenly father, I believe he's teaching us something about God's love. That when you're in Christ, God looks down on you like that, like you're in this crib, you know, in spite of your weaknesses or whatever. He loves you. And the gospel makes that true. These essential practices that we're talking about, these aren't burdens to add on to your life. They're nutrients that help you progress and grow. They're like sails on a ship that you raise so that the wind can carry you across the water. You know, the essentials are the sails and God is the wind that propels you forward. And don't measure your growth and maturity by how much you do these things. How much? You know, it's easy to read the Bible and pray and go to church and confess sin and still be a jerk. That's not what we're talking about. Doing them isn't the only measure. Measure it by how much these things are changing you and shaping you and growing your love for God and for people. The touch of fellowship, the food of God's word, the cleansing of confession, the communication of prayer and rest in the gospel. The Christian life is not complicated or flashy. You do those things over and over and over again for the rest of your life. And just like a, a baby, you won't necessarily see growth instantly. You know, this isn't a microwave. But over time, you look back, and you realize how much God has grown and produced in you. So I want to help walk out of, help you walk out of here with a plan. So this is part three on your handout, kind of the application it's January, so it's always a good time to start some new habits. And over the next few weeks, I'd love for you to start incorporating these essentials into your life. And to, to, to do that, you really only need two plans. You need a devotional plan and an accountability plan. The devotional plan is where you get your word and your prayer and the reminder of the gospel. This is your food and communication and rest. It, it's a way for you to spend time in God's word and, and remind yourself of those key truths. And listen, I could give you some fancy plan or cool bookmark or some link to, to study the Bible or whatever. You don't need that. All you need is God's word and something to write on. So pick a book of the Bible in the New Testament. It could be 
the Gospel of John. You could pick Romans or Galatians or 2 Timothy. Just pick one and start reading through it. A paragraph a day or a chapter a day or whatever your stomach can hold at the moment. And when you finish that book, pick another one and read through another book. The Christian life isn't fancy. You're feeding on God's word every day. And write down what God is teaching you. Write down what he's challenging you with, what you're learning about him. I've been using these scripture journals that you can get on Amazon for five or six bucks. It has the Bible on one side and a blank page to take notes on the other. And take that, that's your devotional plan. Figure out what book am I gonna start reading? You write it down right now and you make a plan to, to spend time every single day in that book. And then you take that and you incorporate it into number two, your accountability plan. This is your confession and your fellowship. Every newborn needs a parent. You need someone who can help you. I want you to take a second, write down one or two names of believers that you will reach out to and meet with over the next few weeks. And I want you to set a time that you're going to touch base with them. So you know every Monday and Thursday and Sunday or Saturday or whatever, you're going to talk to them. You're going to text them. You're going to call them. You're going to confess sin to each other. You're going to share something God's teaching you. You're going to pray with each other. Do that with someone you're here at the conference with. Going through this with someone will be a game changer. If you've just trusted Christ recently, I just want to say this is absolutely incredible. You have entered into the most monumental relationship that will impact your eternity. I can't overstate how significant that is. And I want to end with this scripture that I, I believe is a picture of what God wants to see happen. And it's my prayer for you and any student that you're helping and meeting with to help grow. So this is 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 10. Listen to this. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We're remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is my prayer for you. God, I pray that you would make these men and women like the Thessalonians who received your word with power and with full conviction. They worked out their faith and love and hope in the Lord Jesus. They were examples to all the fellowship of believers. They confessed and they turned from their sin and their idols. And God, you use them to sound forth the gospel all over the world. Make that be true of these students today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to this breakout session. Just a reminder that you can find 
all of the other breakout sessions on Apple and Spotify if you search SMC 2021. So check those out there and continue to take the next steps in your faith in Christ.